I'll take your Bible this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 and 10, which really in a way is part of this first section that we looked at last week from verses 4 through 8. And we're entitling this this morning, The People of God. The People of God. And this is Peter again writing verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I would just ask you, is as we look at this text, who is it that gets to define the church? Who is it that gets to define the church? And the definition that's given to the church, does that definition matter? Sort of when we just thought within contemporary culture that the church had been relegated to something of a relic from the past, 2020 came along, and all of a sudden, everybody's talking about the church again. People have all sorts of ideas and opinions about the church, and they're trying to think through what the church is supposed to do and how they're supposed to function. And you heard, like I heard, all those questions. How often should they meet? Should we really be getting together on a weekly basis? Should we meet at all? Who makes the decisions about the church meeting? And how should they sing? Should they even sing? How close should we sit to one another? Should we greet each one with a hug? Or are we allowed to touch one another? Suddenly, a whole lot of people had a whole lot of opinions about the church, and they gave their take on what they thought the church should be. Who is it that gets to define the church, and what does that definition have to do with us? Does it genuinely matter? Well, in the Word of God, Peter himself, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, pulling, pulling a picture from the Old Testament here, is defining the church, and by the time we get to the end of this, I hope you realize it truly matters. It certainly matters, Peter says, in the way that you're to respond, in the way that you're to live your life in this world. Now, again, we have to think about the context whenever we drop in to look at any of the verses that we're looking at here, and how all of these things fit within the whole of all that we've looked at to this point. After several verses that we looked at of exhorting believers, last week Peter came to this section here where he presented us with the Old Testament metaphor of the stone. You'll remember that. You'll remember that he was thinking back and trying to illustrate a spiritual truth to us. And to do that, he was taking language from three primary sources in the Old Testament. From Psalm 118.22 that you'll remember says, "...the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone." And then he also used Isaiah 8.14, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. And he also pulled from Isaiah 28.16, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. Peter identified then the fullness of this, this picture of the stone that was spoken of in the Old Testament as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is completely in agreement with how Christ identified himself in the same way in Matthew 21, verse 42. His purpose in all this was to present the spiritual reality of who Christ is in this, this metaphor of the stone, the stone that was selected 
that was choice, that was perfect, that came to save sinners and provide this place of refuge. The way that he describes the stone as being a choice stone, one that God elected, one that God chose to use for this purpose. This is the stone from which we said that the whole church is fashioned, that Christ in this way not only came from a different quarry, but the church comes from the quarry of Christ himself. That's how we are pulled from, and that's the stones as we're crafted after. We're fashioned after Christ, that he is then the very cornerstone that sets the symmetry for on which the whole building is fashioned and built, and that he's the proving stone, as we looked at, from which all mankind is offered the hope of refuge. But we know, and we looked in that text, that this proving stone reveals that not all mankind finds refuge in him. Some look at him, and, and they see one that is incredibly offensive, and they stumble over him. So mankind is divided into two groups, either those that are built upon this stone in this spiritual house that find refuge from judgment in him, or those that stumble over this rock that's offensive to them. Every verse from last week that we looked at had those words, the stone, in it. There, we also said, was a corporate nature to this text that follows us all the way into the verses that we look at today, that in verses 4 through 8, the focus was broadened from the individual believer and the exhortations that we had saw in weeks past, here to the whole church being, look at verse 5 of chapter 2, living stones, plural built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The picture that we're getting in all of this is Peter here is something like a bricklayer in this text where doctrinally he's applied mortar to each of the living stones that Christ has saved, and he has cemented them here to this choice and precious cornerstone. And in the process of tying us, nailing us to Jesus Christ in this way, he's also cemented you one to one another. You are here united to one another. You are united to Christ as a living stone. Think about what's going on here also. Those that are receiving Peter's letter, they may have been few in number, but they are scattered here all throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all in the midst of fierce trials. But they've just been told from that text, you're not alone. You don't stand alone as a believer. You may look around you, and there may be nobody else in Bithynia who is a believer, but you are amongst a group of living stones. You're part of a spiritual house, and that brings comfort even to those who may be here today who need to hear those words, you are not alone if you have been saved. All believers are part of a house that's constructed by Christ, built by Christ, centered upon Christ. And while you come to this text this morning, and the metaphor of the stone has ended, he's not using it anymore here in verses 9 and 10, but he's doing something different that's in harmony and, and conjoins to last week where he's addressing believers all as a whole, where he lays out this biblical profile of what the church is, how it's defined, that includes her divine purpose here, her divine purpose and her merciful privileges. And he does this as an overwhelming source of encouragement and humility that's meant to remind you of the Lord's mercy and the Lord's love. When you see how he connects these things together here, then you realize that the way that you define the church actually matters. The way that you define the church actually means something. And the way that we'll see that he defines the church here shows that the work of the gospel has made an impact on a group of people. He is defining the church, 
and he is defining believers so that you'll know who you are as a believer in Christ, conjoined with all believers who are in Christ, and how that impacts you and what that has to do. This comes with a purpose that he's going to lay out. So not only then is Peter here so very kind to reveal who we are and our identity, but he's also kind to show us how this matters and how this leads to encouragement, humility, even gospel proclamation and worship. So it is the Word of God that defines the church. Look at how this takes place. Number one, I want you to see the biblical profile of the church. And this is the first half of verse 9. The biblical profile of the church. You could ask the text the question, who are you as believers? And he answers that. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The Bible actually gives you the words that you can use the next time someone says, tell me about your church. Somebody can say, tell me about your church, and you can easily say, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And you would be too if you would repent from your sins and trust Christ and be saved. You, you might think, well, I'm never actually going to say that to anybody. Who, who in the world would say that? And, and why, what would it be that would cause you pause in being able to say that? I think it is that you might think, well, this sounds just a bit too pretentious. It may sound like I'm trying to impress someone if I went out to eat after this and somebody said, tell me about your church. And you're like, man, I am part of a royal priesthood. And certainly that's been abused. Certainly that's been abused by prosperity teachers who want you to think you're something that's not even meant here at all. That that means that you're something that, that means that this great wealth and prosperity is going to come to you in this world. But if you look at the context of what the Bible says and the people who he's writing this to here and who he's identifying, that's not the case at all. I really hope by the time we get to the end of all this, we come to the reality that you know this is who you are. And these lofty titles genuinely belong to the church. And the reality is we did nothing to earn them. So that their identifying us in this way really expresses friend, only what God has done. If you described your church as Peter describes the church here, you could easily preach the gospel to someone the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, found in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Christ's work is found in Peter's profile of the church. Christ's work is found here in the very few words that open this verse. Look at verse 9, but you are. That describes Christ's work. Peter opens this section by contrasting the negative example that you see in the second half of verse 7 through 8 with the positive profile that you see in verse 9. Look at 7 through 8. Those who disbelieved the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." He's looking at there those who were disobedient to the word, who rejected the choice stone, who were opposed to him. Those who disbelieve, they stumble over this stone. It's offensive to them because they're disobedient to the word. And at the end of the day, it leaves them without refuge and judgment. They are forsaking what he offers here. So Peter is speaking there in that first part to those that are outside of the church, those that are in the darkness, outside of saving faith. And then he says, but you as if there's a distinction between you and them. And there is a distinction. 
He's been telling us this all along the way, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3. There's a distinction. You, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's been telling us who we are all along the way. You are either, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, lost in your sins, disobedient to the word, without refuge in judgment, or verse 9 here, Christ has saved you so that your identity is found in what Christ has done. These are words that define you, but you are. Tell me, Peter. Tell me who I am. Peter is giving you a profile of the church. It's something that he's doing here, something like a spiritual mirror so that you can see who you are of what Christ has done, who you are that's sometimes hard to see as we look around us within the church. Peter is painting you a picture. He's painting a picture of the church, a portrait of what you look like, and the colors that he's drawing forth to put on this palette that he's using here are just like last week. They're colors from the Old Testament. Look at the first way that what he calls you here. He calls you a chosen race. His first description of the church is that you are a chosen race, eclectos, choice, select, chosen, elect. Where did you hear that before? You heard it last week. You heard it here in chapter 2, verse 4, the living stone that the Lord Jesus Christ is precious and choice, choice in the sight of God. Chapter 2, verse 6, the stone that has been laid in Zion is a choice stone. I think it would just be a little too pretentious to describe ourselves with the same adjectives used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ on our own, except that Peter's doing that. That should be shocking to us that he would say this. You're a chosen race, genos. There's a hot-button word, race, kind, a people of a common identity, a people descended from a common lineage, sharing an ancestry and custom. If race is a hot-button word, what could throw gas on it to make it all burn all the hotter? Elect, chosen race, right? But that's what Peter's telling us. If you have been saved, you are Christ's people, you are a chosen race. Where does that sort of a language come from? Where, where does Peter draw that language from to paint this picture here so that you'd be able to see something of who you are? The closest word-for-word -word parallel is probably Isaiah 43, verses 20 through 21, when the Lord promises to accomplish a second exodus, rescuing Israel from Babylon, and he says this, the beast of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, he says, will declare my praise. Within that context, who is he talking about? Israel. He's talking about ethnic Israel. He's talking about, in that context, the lineage of descendants from Abraham who are going to forsake God numerous times along the way, and they're going to find themselves at one point in history in Babylon. And he calls them over and over again chosen. He calls them chosen in Isaiah 41.8, Isaiah 44.1, the titles that, that's here in this text that you're going to find all the way through chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, are intimately linked to Israel from the Old Testament. The surprising component, the shocking thing that Peter is going to do is he's going to apply them to those that Christ saves, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. 
that, that ought to give you pause and, and, and cause you to just marvel at what Christ has done. But this is Galatians 3, 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Why is it that God would choose a people? Why would he eclect us, anyone? Well, you find that answer again in the Old Testament. And it sounds a lot like the picture that Peter is painting here coming from Yahweh's relationship with Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, this is what you hear. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But here's the reason, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand that redeemed you from the house of slavery. Why did he choose a people from a common lineage? Why elect a people for salvation to be his people? Well, it's certainly not because of anything you did. It's certainly not because you could go anywhere and go, I deserve this. Because so-and-so is saved, surely I must be saved. It's not because of anything you did apart from that you needed salvation. The Deuteronomy 7 reason is because he's a loving God who keeps his promises. He is a loving God who keeps his promises. Look again, and I know we're dwelling here just a bit, but look again at that word chosen one more time. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, it describes sort of the two parts of the meaning that it has, where it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the choice stone. He's choice in that he's perfect. He's flawless. He's holy and righteous and just and set apart from all others. No other stone then could be a, a choice stone quite like this that can then come and save sinners so that the God, God the Father chose the Son to come and do this work of salvation by which both he and the son will be glorified. If there's anything for you to boast about in being a chosen race, it's that there's a choice stone. In chapter 2, verse 9, this church is a chosen race distinct from the adjective used to describe Christ here in so much that the father didn't look at you and think, wow, you are perfect to be saved. You're flawless. Of anybody in the world, you're the one that should be saved. Not like that at all. You, you were saved and, and you, were, you were made in this similar way to Christ by Christ himself who washed you and cleansed you and made you choice. That's the distinction here. And that in love he elected you. In love he, he selected you. As he selected Christ to go and to save sinners. This is his choice. You have no reason here then for pride to swell within you whenever you see those words chosen race. No reason for pride to swell. Only, only, only awe and humility because you certainly don't deserve this. Why are you a chosen race? You are a chosen race because he is a loving God who keeps his promises. And he said in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. You, you are a chosen race because he's a loving God who keeps his promises. And in Genesis 12, verse 3, he promised that in Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. It took a choice stone in order to make a chosen race whose only response then is humility and awe. This ought to shut every mouth in here. And it ought to cause you to swell with gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. One commentator said this, the wonder is not that God chose some and not others. Abraham, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. 
Jacob, not Esau. The wonder is that God chose any. Certainly, God does not choose an elite. Israel is a chosen people, but not a choice people. God's elect have no grounds for pride. On the contrary, God chooses not the wise, the mighty, or the noble, but the foolish, the weak, and the despised. No one may boast before him. That, that's pulled from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and 31. Verse 31, Paul said, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Galatians 6, 14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This is a pride-crushing doctrine. This doctrine takes your pride and just sort of grinds it down into dust so that humility can start to flourish from that dust. God alone here is responsible for your salvation. He's responsible for your formation. He's responsible for the selection of this race. The reason race, I think, is a hot-button issue is because of pride. And a worldview of race that drifts into the church is going to pride, and it's going to come with an attempt to weaken and pull down and pull apart this pride-crushing uh, doctrine that you see here in this verse, that, that He would make a chosen race, friend, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That there is a beauty that you know from this verse that I'm sure many of you have experienced, some of you have experienced here as, as we've had missionaries from other countries come and visit us and preach from the pulpit here. Church, you have more in common with those brothers and sisters in Christ who are born on the other end of the globe, who don't look much like you, who speak a different language than you, who you don't even know how to pronounce the name of the town in which they're than members of your biological family who are lost. The Lord Jesus Christ here, we're told in this text, has made a people that our contemporary culture is particularly keen on attempting to deconstruct and pit against one another, and they're doing a pretty good job at convincing some that your biological race is far superior to this race, instructs this race, and really directs you being a chosen race by Christ. But think again about the context in which Peter's writing He's not writing to one group of people in one place. Isn't it interesting that he's writing to a scattered people, a diverse people, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who, chapter 1, verse 1, you're chosen. Christian, your race, your lineage, your genealogy is from a living stone that is choice and precious in the sight of God. That's what Peter's giving us here. That truth ought to be to you a source of comfort, encouragement, a point of joy, a foundation for worship, that you might walk humbly with your God in this world, not as the world and culture tries to make it to be a, a cause of frustration and confusion and contention. Those come from pride when destructive heresies are introduced into the church and the truth is maligned. That's Second Peter where he warns us. Pride causes men to bite and devour, to lie, to create false narratives in order to pit us one against another. But, friend, truth cultivates humility. Truth cultivates humility. Peter's giving you truth. Christ's church is a chosen race. The second way that he describes us here is as a royal priesthood. Peter, again, is just giving you more words from the Old Testament. Probably what he has in mind here is Exodus chapter 19. Israel's at the base of Mount Sinai. The loving God who keeps his promises is about to make another promise with these people that before he makes this covenant with them, he first defines them this way in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Note something from that text you might not have noted before. The priests that are described there are not just from the tribe of Levi. Do you notice that? He's talking about a kingdom of priests, that they would all be this way because of their relationship and proximity to God and the way that they serve Him and worship. And Peter's shocking truth here is that Christ makes Jews and Gentiles into a royal priesthood. Again, these are just staggering truths that Peter's tying to the church that would be hard for us to say apart from the Word of God telling us these things. We briefly looked at this last week from verse 5 where the living stones are built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. How does that take place? They're chosen for the priesthood by God. They're cleansed for the priesthood by the blood of Christ. They're anointed for the priesthood by the Holy Spirit. This is totally and completely a Christian priesthood that has distinctions from the priesthood of the Old Testament. That was pointing towards this priesthood. This is a royal, kingly priesthood. You serve a king. You're described as royal priest. What is royalty supposed to do if it's acting and functioning in a way that it's supposed to? It's supposed to serve people. Well, this is a priesthood that's royal in this nature because you're serving a king. You're not in this priesthood offering any sort of an atonement like the Old Testament priesthood was doing. In this priesthood, atonement is fully accomplished by the one who is the king himself, who fulfills the Old Testament priesthood and inaugurates the New Testament covenant. You have been, you have been placed into this priesthood that Hebrews talks about over and over again. Hebrews 10, 19, you have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10.22, you can draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed with pure water. You can come near. That's what a priest does. They come near to God. And Hebrews 13.15 through 16, we looked at this last week, you continually offer up a sacrifice of, not for your sins, Christ has done that. You offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name, not neglecting doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is part of your priesthood. Romans 12, 1 that we looked at last week, you present your body as a sacrifice in this way. Paul said you present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In all ways, this is a New Testament priesthood, and this is a New Testament reality that you see in Revelation 1, 6, where we're told he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever. Note who made you a priest. You didn't do it yourself. He made you a priest. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Revelation 20 verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This isn't fanciful language. Peter's moved past metaphoric language. What he's giving us here, he's describing a reality of who you are. A priesthood has access to God through Christ, and you're delighting in your service to Him. That Peter could describe the church this way. Friends, this reveals something. This reveals that the Father has done something of significance through His Son, changing a people who were not once able to stand before Him or come near Him, now having access to Him, fulfilling the purpose for which you were created to glorify, worship, enjoy Him forever. When you biblically identify the church as a royal priesthood. You confess that the power of the gospel is real and that it has done something and that it's changed you from who you were to who you are now, where you couldn't come near to God 
where now you can. A chosen race, a royal priesthood. He says here, a holy nation. Hagios, pure, set apart for God. Ethnos, a nation, a people. He's describing here a pure people who are set apart for God, for service unto God. You think of the language of Paul and speaking about citizens of heaven. That has the same idea here. You're sojourners on earth, but you're part of another nation. This is the identity of the church, and it says, again, something about the power of the gospel. You don't set yourself apart. You don't go about applying for citizenship to heaven. If it's true, then, what Peter's giving us here, that you're a holy nation, then it can only be described as something that God has done. That's the only way this takes place. And you hear it all throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 4, 3, the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. 1 Corinthians 6, he washed, sanctified, justified you so that, so that you could be described as holy as part of that nation. That it, for 2 Timothy 2, 2, he made you a vessel of honor, sanctified for the master's use. He fashioned you into a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. He sanctified you through his son, Hebrews 2. The only way that you can be associated and described with any group that's described as holy and set apart in service to God is that God has done something to make you that way. You may not feel like a chosen race. You may not feel like a royal priesthood or a holy nation. It might escape you when you look around this room going, is that really what this group of people is? But this is what the death of Christ has accomplished. That's, that's where we're going in all of this. People here for God's own possession, that's how this last description here, literally it could be a people acquired that's Exodus 19 language again. That's Deuteronomy 4.20 language. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession. But as we keep going back and saying that Peter's dabbing his brush here in the Old Testament to tell you who you are, it's not only Old Testament language. Acts 20 verse 28, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You are an acquired people. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.23, the same thing. Ephesians 1.14, the redemption of God's own possession. Over and over, you get this picture that you have been bought with the blood of Christ, that his death accomplished something, so that you could be a people for God's own possession. In Titus 2.13 and 14, Paul says, this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Ephesians 5, 9, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, from all races, from all ethnicities. This people purchased by the blood of Christ, an acquired people. You don't make yourself an acquired people. Christ has done this. Peter's profile here of the church is a description of the gospel's promise. Calvin said it this way, 
there is further as to these benefits a contrast between us and the rest of mankind to be considered. And hence it appears more fully how incomparable is God's goodness towards us. For he sanctifies us who are by nature polluted. He chose us when we could find nothing in us but filth and vileness. He makes his peculiar possession from worthless dregs. He confers the honor of the priesthood on the profane. He brings the vassals of Satan, of sin, and of death to the enjoyment of royal liberty." Who are you, Christian, and what is the church? You are a people changed by the person and work of Christ, chosen, royal, holy, possessed, a race, a priesthood, a nation. You are God's people. And if you get this, if you understand how Peter's describing you and you understand how this took place, you don't go out boasting from here that these titles have been conferred upon you. Instead, you go out boasting from this place in the Christ who's accomplished something that leaves you completely speechless, that he has done this. Every definition of this profile that Peter's giving us is crushing pride and it's nourishing humility. Every title of this profile, making known that God is able to keep his promises. Every description of the identity of the church that's found here is revealing that he is a God who has done a mighty work through the gospel and love. If you want to know who you are, Christian, the scriptures are sufficient. You don't have to go into the world and ask, who am I, and try to go out into the middle of nowhere and try to figure it out. Just open up your Bible. I, I always think about it. I had a client one time, a younger guy who was like, I need some money to go on a trip. What are you going to do on the trip? I'm going to go find myself. I'm like, well, how do you know where to go? Nobody likes that when they're asked that. You must, you're different. You must be defined by biblical doctrine, not secular culture. You must be defined by biblical doctrine, not secular culture. The first half of verse 9, this is a humbling reminder of what God has done through Christ. The biblical profile of the church that leads to the second half of verse 9, the divine purpose of the church. Look at the text. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. When the lights go out, this is a great verse to be on, isn't it? Called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's a divine purpose, Peter is saying here, for those people that are described in the first half of the verse. The chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation are to you, Agelio, to report widely, to proclaim throughout, to tell everywhere of the goodness of the God who has saved you. Described here as calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Calling, when he uses that word, is in regards to salvation, much like Paul in Romans 8.30, where he says, those whom he predestined, he also called, or 1 Corinthians 1.9, called into fellowship with his son. Peter has the same idea in mind here, and he even uses it towards the end of this letter in chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To, to be very clear here on what he's saying, Peter describes this calling for you, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Darkness is a metaphor. He's using a metaphor here now for spiritual death and unbelief. All of those who are described in the first half of verse 9 were once this way. You were once in darkness. You were formerly of darkness, Ephesians 5, 8. You were loving darkness rather than the light, John 3, 19. And as darkness is a metaphor for death, spiritual death and unbelief, light is a metaphor for spiritual life and saving faith and even Christ himself that you know from John chapter 1. The life 
was the light of men, John 1.14. Light shining in the darkness, John 1.5. So that when a person is saved, they are called out of this darkness therein into the light who is Christ himself. Paul said in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This was revealed in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where we're told the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and you see it being fulfilled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul is commissioned to preach this message. Jesus told him in Acts 26, 13 to go and preach to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. Jesus said, in me. If you are part of Christ's church, then he's called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Again, all of that is his work. And this is to be, Paul, or Peter says here, the message that's on your tongue. This is to be in your mouth. This is to be the subject of what you're proclaiming as you go about making known what God has done. This is the purpose that you may proclaim. You here is in the plural. The whole church is to be doing this. And it fits in harmony with the Old Testament again. Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the people. Remember back to Isaiah 43.21 that we looked at earlier, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. How is it that the second half of verse 9 here comes from the first half of verse 9? How is it that you're to be doing these things? Why is it? Why is this the purpose? Well, how is it that you became a chosen race? Were you born into a privileged family? Absolutely not. He says you're a child of darkness. How did you become a royal priesthood? Did you go and attain training somewhere? Did you go to a royal seminary? A royal monastery? No. He's, the word of God says you dabbled in the deeds of darkness. You're a slave of sin. How did you become a holy nation? Were you born to an elite people group? Absolutely not. You were born into this world, you were loved by the world, and you loved the world, John 15, 19. Why, what did you do to become a people for God's own possession? Did you go about winning God's favor? Did you achieve righteousness? Did you atone for your own sin? Absolutely not. Galatians 2, Galatians 3, no one's justified by the works of the law. What is it then that you proclaim that you can identify as the way the Word gives you the the definitions here. It's only a choice stone, friend, that can make a chosen people. It's only a priest king that can make those he saves into a royal priesthood. It's only a holy God who can make a people a holy nation. It's only a loving, gracious, and merciful Savior who could purchase a people with his own blood. If the profile of the church that we looked at left us speechless when it confronted us with what God has done, the purpose of the church reminds us that you have something to say. And you need to be about the work of saying it. Church, this is the response of a humble people that are confessing the work of God. And this brings glory to God. The church here is almost like an amplifier, God's amplifier that's declaring the glory of God in salvation. And this is an honor to do this, that he would choose people to reveal these things in this way. Certainly we can agree with Psalm 19.1 that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and that the expanse is declaring the work of his hand. That's completely undeniable. But in a much more audible and precise way, the church is to be telling of the glory of God and the whole chosen race, the entire royal priesthood, the entire holy nation is declaring the work of his son, the work of his son. 
profile of the church has brought us to the purpose of the church. Peter closes here with the merciful privilege of the church. Verse 10, the merciful privilege of the church. Number three, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's painting this portrait again, and he's dabbed his brush here in the Old Testament from Hosea 1 and 2 in regards to Israel. There Israel is repudiated as God's people because of her unfaithfulness and sin, but God reveals he will have mercy on them and they will be his people again. And he says this, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And like Peter has done before, he does this again. He identifies this with Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ as the people who have received mercy. For the first time in this section right here, Peter's telling us our identity before Christ, not a people. You once didn't know his mercy. A privilege is a right or an advantage granted only to a particular group. The group is the church, and what's granted to them is the goodness of God to those who are in misery and distress. Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, where he's quoting Hosea. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Vessels here of wrath prepared for destruction. Now vessels of mercy. It's shocking and undeserved like everything up to this point. Peter's telling you of your great privilege that you have of being a beneficiary of mercy. And think about the context of all this and how that applies to us. I think perhaps being the exposition-loving, reformed, biblical church, sometimes we have a tendency to emphasize the difficulty of uh, following Christ and minimizing at the same time the privileges that belong to being part of the church Peter didn't have to tell the recipients of this letter that it's going to be hard to follow Christ. They're in the midst of fiery trials. But he here is is led by the Spirit to shepherd them towards this reminder of the great honor of what God has done by saving them, revealing to them who you are in Christ. And so we must tell people it's not easy to take up your cross and come after Christ. But like Peter has told us today, it's worth everything you're going to endure in this world. It's a privilege to be his people who have received his mercy. I'll close with this. Sinclair Ferguson said it. He said, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. Thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. Friend, if you think you deserve anything of what Peter's giving you here, it's a sure sign it doesn't describe you that you have no understanding of the gospel, that you don't understand who you are as a sinner first, separated from Christ. This is how the Word of God defines the church. And truly, I praise you've seen it matters. When the church understands her biblical profile, her divine purpose, her merciful privilege, how can you leave from this place the same? The Lord's telling us who we are, what we're called to do, This would seem right, would it not, that the Creator gets to define the creature? Particularly when the Creator is the one that sent His Son to save the creature, to redeem the creature, to make it a new creature. He defines those that He purchases. He defines those He redeems. He defines those He saves. It's the Word of God that defines you, Christian. 
question is, will you yield to a source outside of yourself to tell you your identity? That's very countercultural. Will you find your identity in the world or in the Word and in Christ? Will these two verses crush pride in your life, grinding it into the dust where humility can start to grow in its place? Will Peter's words strengthen you where you've doubted and provide surety for your confidence in what God has done in you? You take this profile of the church, will you go home, will you ponder on it, will you consider it and let it lead you to worship as you marvel in the great display of God's love and mercy as described here? Will all of that then reverberate from you as a gospel-proclaiming people, a redeemed heart, an amplifier, proclaiming the excellencies of Him who saved you? Father, we thank You for the text that You've given us this morning and you're bringing it to our attention in this very moment. Our desire is to be a church that proclaims the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. That light is displayed in people who are described in such a way that we can scarce imagine apart from the text telling it to us here. We rejoice in what You've done. We confess we're unworthy. Cultivate humility in us. Let us marvel of your great love, and let us proclaim the gospel as vessels who are displaying the power of the gospel in the church. Father, let us be able to define ourselves in such a way that reveals the gospel and calls others to saving faith in Christ, to the glory of your name. Amen.